Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, November 11th, 2022, the 660th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And you'll be supporting me, the work I do, and the show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, go ahead and continue listening to the show on a wide range of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, you can find all those links at linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And all I ask is that you share it with your friends. So widespread desanctimony is now in its Sixth day, if you want to measure from Trump's initial quip in his rally speech on Saturday night and the media on the right, conservative Inc., the GOP establishment elites, their Twitter mouthpieces and the mainstream media on the right are still having a meltdown and still trying to destroy Trump and demoralize MAGA. I said on Wednesday morning that what we saw Tuesday night as election night wore on was a coordinated attempt to do exactly that. Destroy Trump, demoralize MAGA, replace it all with a candidate that everybody could unify around, Ron DeSantis. Once again, I like Ron DeSantis just fine. I don't think he's been fully vetted. And until then, until I know that he is on the side of the people and will remain on the side of the people, I will remain skeptical. And I think that that's wise for everybody to do. It is no slight against Ron DeSantis to say he has not yet earned my trust. He has been an above average governor. And for that, I appreciate him. I appreciate the way he handles the media. And he seems like a decent man. I hope my read is correct, but I don't know it is. Now, one of the things that's bothering people the most about all this is that they don't see any motivation, any justification for why Trump will go after Ron DeSantis in whatever small way he has. First thing is, it's been way overblown. 
Trump has said some very mild things about Ron DeSantis. None of them are bad in any direct way, and none of them are the sort of extreme character attacks that you might expect if Trump actually considered Ron DeSantis an enemy. They're basically love taps. Trump called him Ron DeSanctimonious on Saturday night at a rally in Miami. 18 hours later, he endorsed Ron DeSantis. And there's a strong likelihood that Trump knew this attack would be coming in a few days, which is maybe why he previewed it. But that part doesn't really matter. I mean, consider it both ways. Go with whichever way seems like it makes more sense to you. I'm not sure either way. But Trump's got his ear to the ground. Trump gets good information. The idea that Trump is just clueless and dumb and narcissistic and ignorant and whatever else you might want to say about him. Well, that's not borne out by the facts. People can make all the character assessments they want, but they should at least be able to support them with something more than the mainstream narrative, the central narrative that we see on television and the sound bites of Trump arranged for everybody by the mainstream media. Watch a Trump rally and see if you think Donald Trump sounds like an egomaniac. He doesn't. It's a politician's job to let people know why they are the right person for the job and what they are doing for the people they're representing. It's not narcissistic to do so. So Trump knows what's going on, generally speaking, most of the time. And it would be no surprise whatsoever if he knew that there was a coordinated attack coming in on Tuesday night to take the air out of the balloon, so to speak, for Trump and MAGA on the night of the midterms. Naturally, the people involved in that coordinated attack are denying that the attack was coordinated, but it just so happened that everyone involved launched into the attack at the same time with the same messaging, with the same emotionality, with the same goal and intent, and they've continued to do it. Again, they're giving soap opera analysis. Why are they so obsessed with this drama? Trump has barely said anything about DeSantis, and DeSantis has not responded at all. The drama is what they are creating every time Trump posts. We don't all need to feel emotional about this. So Trump went on and pointed out the fact that in 2020, he received 1.1 million more votes than Ron DeSantis received on Tuesday night. And people say, hey, it's a presidential election rather than a midterm election. More people come out and vote. And that's just fine. But we're told that the reason Ron DeSantis won is that Floridians love him so very much that everybody has moved here and all those people are voting for Ron DeSantis. And there's at least some hint from these same people in the establishment that Florida runs really clean and good elections. And that's part of the reason why they got their vote counted so quickly, while places like Arizona and Nevada and Alaska and elsewhere are still counting their votes. Ron DeSantis is in charge of a big state. Florida has a big population. They were able to get their work done and move on. Other places have not. There is a pretty stark contrast there. Nonetheless, Trump turned out over 20 percent more Republican voters in 2020 than Ron DeSantis just did on Tuesday. People remark that Donald Trump had a much slimmer margin of victory over Joe Biden than Ron DeSantis had over Charlie Crist the other night. And that's certainly true by the reported numbers. I'm not going to cast that into doubt at all. But if we're going to discuss that, we should at least know the numbers. So here are the numbers. In 2020, in the general election, Donald Trump received about 5,670,000 votes. Joe Biden received about 5,300,000 votes. So the difference there is about 370,000 votes. On Tuesday night in Florida, Ron DeSantis received 4.61 million votes and Charlie Crist received 3.1 million votes. So huge win for Ron DeSantis. Congratulations, Ron DeSantis. But where is everybody? This is fewer than 8 million votes when just two years earlier, 
three million more Floridians came out and voted. Now, maybe this just speaks to a lower number of voters going out and participating in midterm elections. That's just fine. But there is a major difference here. Apparently, in 2020, there were enough Democrat voters who went out and voted in Florida against Donald Trump that if they all showed up at the polls on Tuesday night, Ron DeSantis would have lost. Now, again, I know this isn't apples to apples. I'm not trying to confuse you here. I'm just saying that it's a pretty big block of voters there who came out in 2020, but weren't inspired enough to come out on Tuesday night. Again, this is not about Ron DeSantis, not about Donald Trump. Let's just focus on the numbers and the total turnout here. So what explains this massive difference? Certainly, Ron DeSantis has done a good job in Florida, and he is extremely popular down there. There could also be something else going on, and that something else could be election manipulation. We know that this happens. We can see it with our own eyes happening now in Arizona. They're still trying to keep Carrie Lake out of office, Blake Masters, Mark Fincham, Abe Homiday. It looks like they will win, but the manipulation is ongoing. They are trying to steal that election. They're trying to steal the elections in Nevada right now. The cameras in Washoe County went off two nights ago with absolutely no explanation. They just said, sorry, we're trying to make sure this will never happen again. And in Georgia, they're literally flipping votes from Herschel Walker to Warnock, trying to get Warnock over 50 percent. So there was no runoff race. Now, it has already been made official that there will be a runoff. I only mention it to point out the fact that this is how hard they are trying to hold on to the Senate to make sure that election deniers will lose everywhere because they don't want to deal with the fact that they steal elections. They don't want the country to know. They don't want the country to find out once and for all. The margins in Florida, though, are worth mentioning for another reason, too, and that's that the Democrats in the last couple of decades have made it their strategy, have intentionally tried to nationalize elections. And this was a profound effect during the Obama era. Rather than elections in cities and states being about the issues in those cities and states, they became about national issues, issues that would easily lend themselves to the popular public narratives that we keep hearing about over and over and over again in our country, race, gender, abortion, climate change, illegal immigration. All of these things are issues that have been portrayed to the American public as the sorts of issues you have to be on one side of or else you're one of the worst people ever. And Obama was great at doing that. They wanted to make every election a national election so that you couldn't go out and vote for a Republican for city council because Republicans are racist and this Republican hasn't renounced his party. So therefore he's racist too. So now you vote for the Democrat. This was a strategy that they've employed for quite a while and they continue to employ it. But what does that look like when you begin to see that these nationalized elections do not seem to create nationalized results in terms of what the media reports the results to be. How does Ron DeSantis win by 15 points in Florida and J.D. Vance knocks out Tim Ryan in Ohio by a sizable margin, but next door in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman beats Dr. Oz. Now, I know there are different states. I understand that. I understand that we are accustomed to the idea that Pennsylvania is somehow a blue state, even though Donald Trump was up by seven or eight hundred thousand votes on election night in 2020. But these national issues should be affecting the national mood in the same way. And of course they are. And we saw Republicans come out with a six million vote advantage in the quote unquote popular vote. The point here is that the results 
reported in Florida are inconsistent with results reported in other places around the country. The way the election is run in Florida is different than the way the elections have been run in other places around the country. None of it matches the central narrative and the central narrative is not doing an adequate job of explaining why at all. So hold that thought for a second. Last night, Donald Trump made this statement on Truth Social. News Corp, which is Fox, The Wall Street Journal and the no longer great New York Post, bring back coal, is all in for Governor Ron DeSanctimonious, an average Republican governor with great public relations who didn't have to close up his state, but did, unlike other Republican governors whose overall numbers for a Republican were just average, middle of the pack, including covid and who has the advantage of sunshine, where people from badly run states up north would go no matter who the governor was, just like I did. And he is right, by the way. Ron DeSantis was better on COVID than most people, most governors, no doubt about it. But he wasn't the best governor on COVID. That was Christy Nome in South Dakota. And Florida did have high numbers. Now, again, you'll know that I don't really pay much attention to those numbers because they are skewed for countless reasons, the most important of which is that the tests don't work. But the idea that Ron DeSantis is somehow the nation's savior on COVID after Trump messed it all up. That's just a complete revision of history. And it's one that's been propagated by powerful sources in the media. So I do understand it. It just doesn't reflect reality. Ron came to me in desperate shape in 2017. He was politically dead, losing in a landslide to a very good agriculture commissioner, Adam Putnam, who was loaded up with cash and great poll numbers. Ron had low approval, bad polls and no money. But he said that if I would endorse him, he could win. I didn't know Adam, so I said, let's give it a shot, Ron. When I endorsed him, it was as though, to use a bad term, a nuclear weapon went off. Years later, they were the exact words that Adam Putnam used in describing Ron's endorsement. He said, I went from having it made with no competition to immediately getting absolutely clobbered after your endorsement. I then got Ron by the star of the Democrat Party, Andrew Gillum who was later revealed to be a crackhead by having two massive rallies with tens of thousands of people at each one. I also fixed his campaign, which had completely fallen apart. I was all in for Ron and he beat Gillum. But after the race, when votes were being stolen by the corrupt election process in Broward County and Ron was going down 10,000 votes a day, along with now Senator Rick Scott, I sent in the FBI and the U.S. attorneys and the ballot theft immediately ended just prior to them running out of votes necessary to win. I stopped his election from being stolen. And now Ron DeSanctimonious is playing games. The fake news asks him if he's going to run if President Trump runs. And he says, I'm only focused on the governor's race. I'm not looking into the future. Well, in terms of loyalty and class, that's really not the right answer. This is just like 2015 and 2016, a media assault collusion when Fox News fought me to the end until I won. And then they couldn't have been nicer or more supportive. The Wall Street Journal loved low energy Jeb Bush and a succession of other people as they rapidly disappeared from sight, finally falling in line with me after I easily knocked them out one by one. We are in exactly the same position now. They will keep coming after us, MAGA. But ultimately, we will win. Put America first and make America great again. Now, that is being described by conservative media as Trump going postal, Trump losing it. Trump goes all in on his attack of Ron DeSantis. Does that sound that bad to you? Sure, there are some quips there. He calls Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSanctimonious again. He's clearly not presenting DeSantis in the glowing light he's supposed to, according to conservative incorporated media, but he's basically just telling a factual story in his own words, naturally, about how Ron DeSantis got into power in the first place. And one of the most interesting parts of that statement is that he sent in the FBI and the U.S. attorneys and the ballot theft ended immediately. 
So let's step outside the soap opera analysis and think about what Trump's actually doing here, because Trump has been on the attack with certain people for seven and a half years. Some of them he attacks and then forms an alliance with later people like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. There are people who Trump's had an alliance with that he then goes after based on new information and changing situations like Mike Pence or Bill Barr. Some of them he has relentlessly attacked for the whole time, like Hillary Clinton. And what do those attacks do? Well, those attacks put all the focus on one person immediately. And then the media consistently rushes to that person's defense because on the Trump side of things, people who are listening to Trump, people who trust Trump, they go in and do the work and they begin vetting these people and they figure out exactly what it is these people have done to achieve their political power. They explore their relationships and their financial ties, their business relationships and their history. And that becomes a thorough process of public vetting. And every time it happens and something really damaging is discovered, the media begins supporting the target of Trump's attacks across the board. They begin trying to convince the public that nothing being found about these characters is true. And why would the media do that? Why would the media rush to the defense of someone like Jeb Bush? Well, Jeb Bush is absolutely a part of the corrupt establishment. What about a character like Mike Pence or Bill Barr? The media has rushed to their defense in the wake of the 2020 election. They had to support Bill Barr because Bill Barr said that he hadn't yet seen evidence of widespread election fraud that would have changed the outcome. They support Mike Pence and accuse Donald Trump supporters who staged the very violent insurrection of wanting to erect a gallows and hang Mike Pence. And we may see the mainstream media begin to consistently defend Ron DeSantis just two years after calling Ron DeSantis one of the most dangerous people on earth for how he was handling COVID. I don't care about the soap opera drama. I care about what the results are. And when Donald Trump makes these attacks, he is able to focus everyone's attention on a particular person or a particular subject. What Donald Trump does in these statements is push the reality in those statements out to the general public because the statements must be covered. The media wants to cover the drama, and in the process of doing so, they put out the information that Donald Trump wants to become part of the public conversation. He has done this effectively and consistently for seven and a half years. It is simply not good enough to think that he is just dumb and narcissistic and he feels threatened by Ron DeSantis. Donald Trump is up by 30 points, 50 points, 70 points. In every poll taken, when Republicans are asked who they want as the candidate in 2024, the Ron DeSantis obsession exists almost solely in the minds of people who are hooked into the central narrative on some level. And many of them are Trump supporters. And again, there's nothing wrong with liking Ron DeSantis. OK, and there's nothing wrong with preferring Ron DeSantis's communication style over Donald Trump's. I get it. But the facts are what they are. And Donald Trump is the leader of the movement. It's not Ron DeSantis and it won't be Ron DeSantis until Ron DeSantis has the baton passed to him by Donald Trump. And if that doesn't happen, it's never going to be Ron DeSantis. That is just the reality. There are Trump supporters and Trump voters who are on the DeSantis train right now. No doubt. I get it. They're angry at Donald Trump. They don't think that Donald Trump should be doing this. They don't want Donald Trump to be divisive, especially not against their new best friend. But as the days and weeks go on, they will see what's happening just like everyone else will see. And then they will come back into the fold because it's not the soap opera drama that matters. All you need to do 
for all of this to make sense is let go of the notion that Trump is some dumb, narcissistic egomaniac who doesn't have self-control, who overreacts to every perceived slight. Let that go. And then all of it makes complete and total sense because then you focus on what the results of all this are. The results are that he has focused a bright and shining light on Florida. What is happening in Florida? Why did their election finish so quickly? What does that say about the rest of the country? Who is Ron DeSantis? Let's all vet him in public. If he's the good guy, a lot of us believe him to be, then he'll stand up to that vetting and he'll be even stronger afterward. But above everything else, Donald Trump has brought all of the anti-Trump and anti-MAGA conservatives out of the woodwork. They've all exposed themselves now. They've all committed and they just double down and double down and double down again. And this morning on Truth Social, Donald Trump retruthed a post from an account called Eric Derbsch. And the truth post that he reposted says Trump masterfully started this fake quote unquote fight with DeSantis to reveal the deep state rhino scum and their puppets. Brilliant move. Now we see who is truly for the people and who is for the D.C. swamp. Trump 2024 MAGA and then three American flag emojis. That is Donald Trump giving a little wink to the idea that this is a fake fight. This is not about Donald Trump going after Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSanctimonious. It's about exposing a coordinated effort to destroy Donald Trump and demoralize MAGA. Laura Logan offered this on Twitter this morning. If you're trying to make sense of DeSantis versus Trump, consider the possibility we're being played and DeSantis's role is to draw out the traitors on the right. As long as his ego stays in check, the plan works. Never assume we know everything. Trump's job was always to expose the enemy within. I agree with that 100%. And that's what I've been saying all week long. I've been saying this on Sunday because I was watching what the results of the effort were and how that benefits MAGA. And it's pretty clear that that's the intent to me. A lot of people think that's giving Trump too much credit. He's not playing five-dimensional chess or however many dimensions you like. But that argument is always silly to me because it's always coming from people who still believe Trump is just a dumb guy, a dumb guy who managed to win the presidency of the United States of America without ever being a politician before and then conduct an incredibly successful presidency while there was a soft coup being enacted against him for the duration. A president so popular that they literally had to steal an election, an entire election, right out in the open to get him out of power. And even as he's out of power, they have done nothing but attack him and his supporters for the two years since. How dumb can he be? Now, I also want to look at this through the perspective, through the lens of something I talk about pretty regularly, the party of false decorum. Now, the party of false decorum is the idea that there is a set of people in this country who conduct themselves not by a set of principles, but by responding to incentives and punishment in a quest for ever increasing power and status and wealth, where the way to move up in that hierarchy is impressing people who are higher up on the hierarchy than you are, who can increase your power and your status and your wealth. People who are deeply invested in this strategy will eventually find their way into systems of corruption and compromise that allow them to continue increasing their power. If you are obsessed with material gain and you are obsessed with hedonistic sorts of pleasure, then you will invariably lead a lifestyle that subjects you to compromise. You will do things that you don't want other people to know about, whether it's in your private life, your sex life, or whether it's in business. Maybe you're a judge who gets paid off or promised a promotion 
to dismiss, let's say, an election fraud lawsuit on procedural grounds. Or maybe you're a corrupt corporate CEO who's paying off politicians to write regulations specifically benefiting your company. The point is that to continue ascending within the party of false decorum, eventually you will be placed in a position where your ascent requires corruption and compromise so that you can be controlled by those who are higher within the power hierarchy. The party of false decorum is not a meritocracy, which is why it lends itself so easily to global communism and the agenda and the movement that we are seeing try to envelop the entire world right now. Now, what is the most threatening thing that can happen to you if you are deeply invested in the party of false decorum and hope to continue ascending within the party. Now, I spent 18 and a half years in Hollywood playing this game more than I would have liked to. You basically just understand that this is how things are done here. And it's so deeply embedded in everyone's behavior that it seems perfectly normal. And naturally, I was surrounded with people who were almost exclusively committed to this same sort of lifestyle, this same sort of pursuit of power and status and wealth within the party of false decorum. I knew thousands of people in the entertainment industry, and it is only image there, particularly now. The most threatening thing to people like this is to have bad things about them just floating around out there in public. That's why they all hire publicists so that their public image can be handled by professionals all the time. They are more than happy to lie about just about anything. Now, if you understand that, you can understand that the worst possible thing to happen to them is for a famous and powerful person who everybody else really likes to say something bad about them, something that actually threatens them in a way that could potentially throw their whole thing off course, something that could immediately eradicate all of the careful reputation management that they've done over however many years. And you can learn quite a lot about someone when you see this process happen. And of course, that's what we see repeatedly when Donald Trump goes on the attack against an individual. How that individual reacts tells you a lot about who that person is. Powerful people who have something to hide usually freak out big time when someone goes after them because the last thing they want is someone else knowing who they really are beneath all of the fraud that is involved with the reputation management beneath the public image and the lies. They're more than happy for everyone to know the intimate details of their life about the things that will help them increase their public image. But their real, true private life, the things that they've done that they're ashamed about, they don't want anyone to know that stuff ever. And Trump is aware of this and he uses it to his advantage consistently. He shines a light on someone and the public gets to see how that person reacts, not only to the initial statement, but to everything that is then found out about that person. And it can be used over and over and over and over and over again. When you understand that, you don't actually need to have this perfectly scripted and well-constructed plan about how every single thing is going to go you know that you always have that in your back pocket. If you know what a given person has done and who they really are, if you are prepared to go strike at that and go put that in public and deal with the consequences yourself, you're going to put that person on tilt if that person is a bad person, if they have things to hide, if they are deceiving the public about who they really are. Now, does Ron DeSantis have anything to hide? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how this plays out. But I do know that Donald Trump has been vetted consistently for seven and a half years, including in ways that have no grounding in reality. 
and people can find things that they like, things that they don't like. Everybody has a history. Everybody has two sides. We all have things we're proud of. We have things that we're not proud of, things that we probably wish we never did or never said. And those things might eventually see the light of day. And then it's up to us whether or not we have the character to stand up and say, yes, I'm regretful that I did that. Yes, I'm sorry that I said that. But you can tell a lot about how a person responds. Now, again, I don't think that there's actually this big rift between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. And I think in the pretty near future, we'll have a lot more answers on this, which is another reason why no one should be freaking out in the meantime. But if it turns out that Ron DeSantis has a bunch of skeletons in his closet and Ron DeSantis is not who he's made out to be, we do need to know that. Even if we find it upsetting and Trump shining a light on him is going to produce that outcome. What's incredible is the response from the GOP establishment and the media. Those are the people who are actually threatened by all of this because if Ron DeSantis is not the 2024 presidential candidate and Donald Trump is, these people are essentially finished. What they're doing is no surprise at all. They're not going after the GOP establishment for how poorly they handled the midterms. They're going after Donald Trump and Donald Trump's candidates. They're saying all of the people who voted for these people in the primaries and in the general election, well, they're all stupid. You're all stupid. You should have listened to us. And because you didn't listen to us, we're going to punish you and we're all going to blame it on you. But it's their fault. And so let's talk a bit more about that. This is an op-ed in the National Pulse today from J.R. Majewski. The headline is, I am a Republican who lost on Tuesday. It wasn't Trump's fault. It was the cowards in D.C.'s McLeadership. The corrupt media is working overtime to hide the Republican establishment's failures in the 2022 midterm elections, perpetuating a myth that Donald J. Trump dragged his endorsed candidates down. This is a complete lie told in order to embolden GOP leaders in Washington, D.C., and ignores the fact that in so many instances, this same McLeadership set MAGA candidates up for failure. In my situation, the National Republican Congressional Committee, the NRCC, led by Chairman Tom Emmer, backed one of my opponents in the primary. She finished in third place with less than 30% of the total Republican vote. Now Tom Emmer wants a promotion. During my primary, the local establishment GOP shunned me. In fact, the Erie County GOP apparatus even went so far as to write a letter to the local liberal media, giving them their endorsement, violating their own charter. Right before the primary, establishment operatives from the Lucas County Young Republican Club posted false images on Twitter claiming that I sent messages calling Trump an idiot in an effort to sway him from endorsing me. It worked in part thwarting an early endorsement. But Trump still graciously gave me a shout out at the rally in Galleon, Ohio, boosting my standing, which led to my primary win. Right after that, Trump gave me his full endorsement and made a contribution to my campaign. We also had several telephone calls wherein he offered me his complete support. The NRCC, on the other hand, offered nothing but passive support, dragging their feet behind the scenes. They delayed implementing me into their Young Guns program, which cost our campaign a significant amount of donor exposure. Once I finally did become part of that program, I was given a commitment of $970,000 to be contributed to my campaign in pre-bought media. I was assigned a field director who was extremely invasive. They demanded involvement in creating and reviewing my campaign budget. Little did I know, this intervention would leave me desperately dependent on them for all television and radio advertising. And despite my attempts at better judgment, they intervened on fundraising efforts and in many cases prohibited me from raising money from Washington, D.C. This involvement also stretched into communications. Their representatives expressed frustration after I took part in interviews and pledged support for President Trump despite the fact that Trump carried the district during previous election cycles. They simply did not want me talking about him. 
my staff would tell me the NRCC was angry and that I needed to tighten it up on their messaging or lose campaign funds. They hung this threat over our necks like the sword of Damocles. Then, when the Associated Press put out a hit piece on me, I was instructed on how to respond, with NRCC staff actually writing the reply, a reply that I didn't even totally agree with. But again, I was told to put it out or I would risk losing their support. I was placed under a gag and told not to speak to media until told otherwise, a strategy which had me sitting around for two days while the story caught wind. Finally, I had enough and spoke out on Facebook, angering the NRCC and eventually causing them to pull out of the race entirely. Here's the kicker. I disproved that hit piece on me and the Associated Press made multiple corrections. The story didn't have much impact locally, but it did nationally. What made the most impact was the fact that the NRCC left the campaign to die. Tom Emmer's team gave my Democrat opponent the chance to tell constituents that the Republican Party had abandoned me. With limited funding, I could not effectively fight back. Meanwhile, my opponent capitalized. NRCC leadership continued to call me, apologizing profusely, admitting that it was a mistake for them to pull out. After all that, they claimed to privately have my back and told me that I could still win. They claimed their actions were a function of their political action committee and that they had no actual control. In hindsight, I realized all of this was just an effort to keep tabs on me. A few weeks later, they had me conduct a poll with Fabrizio. I was told if I was within margin, their support would return. So much for all the establishment GOP claims that it is Trump who only backs people when he is sure they can win. That's actually what the GOP, not Trump, does. The polls showed I was down, but also concluded I was only down because of my inability to fight back against the Democrat narrative. Thanks again, NRCC. It also showed there were still enough undecided voters and that all I needed was to get on TV. This still wasn't good enough for the D.C. Republican clique. They continued to watch my campaign bleed in an R3 winnable race. Before I was set to speak at a recent rally, I received a call telling me that I was winning and that the cavalry was coming. I assumed this meant they would be buying media. It didn't happen. They just wanted me to believe they were supporting in case I won and in case I had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Donald Trump. As for President Trump himself, he held a number of rallies in the state and invited me to every one of them. Not only did he recognize me at the rallies, he offered me a chance to speak. He held a telephone town hall that garnered 15,000 attendees from my district. In conclusion to that call, a poll question was asked, can President Trump count on you to vote for J.R. Majewski on November 8th? There was a 99% response rate with 86% saying yes, 4% saying no, and 9% undecided. Donald Trump's record speaks for itself, and so does the McLeaderships. And the McLeadership thing is, McConnell and McCarthy, the Republican leaders of the Senate and the House. So again, first off, the idea that there was no red wave is wrong. We're going to retake the House, retake the Senate, most likely six million more American voters voted Republican than Democrat. That is because of MAGA knocking on doors, making phone calls, getting out there, working at the polls being involved in their communities, sharing truth in their circles about what's actually happening in their communities. That's MAGA that produced that. That's Donald Trump that produced that. That's not the Republican National Committee. That's not the NRCC. That's not Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy. The Republican Party in Washington, D.C., except for a handful of members in the House and the Senate, have done virtually nothing in the last two years to stave off the global agenda at all. The Senate, by and large, has helped Democrats do whatever they want in the name of the fake president and his fake administration. The so-called election deniers far exceeded expectations for their success in their races. And election fraud is being exposed in front of the country. So there was a red wave the number of Republican voters alone proves that. And where failures existed, they are the fault not only of election fraud, of course, but of the National Republican Party not getting behind its candidates. 
Republicans could have large majorities in both houses if they had wanted to, but they didn't want to because that's not what's best for the uniparty and the uniparty is what they serve. The voters chose these candidates and the GOP establishment decided that they don't care what their own voters think or want. That should be obvious to everyone. And now those same people are involved in a coordinated effort to destroy Trump and demoralize MAGA. Donald Trump is not just going to stand aside and watch that happen. Now, there's one other really interesting piece of news that I think has kind of slipped through the cracks in the midst of all the aftermath of the midterms and the obvious election fraud we're witnessing in Arizona and in other states and in the Trump DeSantis feud, the soap opera drama. Well, this is from Judicial Watch yesterday. Defense Department records reveal U.S. funding of anthrax laboratory activities in, ha, you guessed it, Ukraine. Judicial Watch announced today it received 345 pages of records from the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, a component of the U.S. Department of Defense, revealing that the United States funded anthrax laboratory activities in a Ukrainian bio lab in 2018. Dozens of pages are completely redacted and many others are heavily redacted. The records show over $11 million in funding for the Ukraine Biolabs program in 2019. So there you have it. This is something that only people in our community have been discussing since the very beginning of this whole Ukraine war. Putin's very unprovoked invasion into Ukraine. Bioclandestine was wiped off Twitter. For talking about Ukrainian biolabs. My podcast was banned from Spotify the day after I talked about Ukrainian biolabs. I don't know if that's connected because I also found out that Spotify just uses their algorithm to make up play counts and that's what they pay out off of. And that includes podcasts and musicians, of course, as well. And I emailed them about that. So the timing is the same. Could have been one, could have been the other. But either way, the biolab story was very, very dangerous. We weren't allowed to talk about it, even though Victoria Newland herself went in front of the Senate and testified to Marco Rubio that we do have biolabs in Ukraine funded by the Department of Defense. But don't worry, they're only doing defensive research. They're just trying to stop diseases, you see. And yes, there are extremely dangerous pathogens there. That could be considered biological weapons if they were to fall into the wrong hands, but they're not in the wrong hands, which means that it's just very important research so that we can save the world in the event that something like the thing we're creating in the lab might get out there. But we know mistakes like that are never made and you just have to trust the science. The records were obtained in a response to a February 28th, 2022 Judicial Watch Freedom of Information Act request to the Defense Threat Reduction Agency for records regarding the funding of Black and Veatch involving work of any manner with biosafety laboratories in the country of Ukraine. Now, I encourage you, if you have not done so yet, to read the Marco Polo report on the Biden laptop. Go find that. Search the document for Black and Veatch, V-E-A-T-C-H, and see what you find. Are the Bidens involved in the funding of Black and Veatch in Ukrainian biolabs? Have a look. Three phases of work are discussed in the records, several of which are indicated to have occurred on site at the Ukrainian labs. The Defense Threat Reduction Agency provided a report titled PACS, Pathogen Asset Control System at the Redacted, which exempts information from disclosure when a foreign government or international organization requests a withholding or the national security official concerned has specified in regulations that the information's release would have an adverse effect on the U.S. government's ability to obtain similar information in the future. And I know that sounds kind of muddled. It's harder to translate from the written page to the podcast, but that is the 
explanation there for why they redact that part. This is common in FOIA releases. When they redact, they have different little codes that they put next to the redaction. And that is to indicate the justification for why that information must be redacted and withheld from the public. So the report, again, is titled PACS Pathogen Asset Control System Phase 2 On-The-Job Training Report, December 11th through 13th slash December 26th, 2018. The executive summary includes information regarding on-site activities, likely referring to a Ukrainian biolab. The report provides a list of titles of OJT on-the-job training participants, with all participants' names from Black and Veatch redacted, citing exemptions B6 for personal privacy and B3, the one I read above. Senior Researcher, Laboratory of Anacrobic Infections. Leading Researcher, same laboratory. Other researchers, same laboratory. Leading Veterinarian Laboratory of Anacrobic Infections. Senior Researcher, Laboratory of Bacterial Animal Diseases. Head of Anthrax Laboratory. Researcher, Anthrax Laboratory. Senior Research Scientist, Laboratory of Mycotoxicology. Junior Researcher, Laboratory of Leptospirosis. Laboratory Assistant, Neuroinfection Laboratory. A section titled Future Activities Notes. Phase 3 Implementation Agreed for March 2019. Man, that's just a few months before COVID started in the world. Included in the records is an order for supplies or services dated August 1st, 2019 is issued by the Defense Threat Reduction Agency to Black and Veatch Special Projects Corp. The total amount of the contract awarded is $11,289,142. The order contains approximately 35 contract line items set forth in a statement of work dated March 5th, 2019, titled Electronic Integrated Disease Surveillance and Pathogen Asset Control Implementation. The statement of work consisting of 24 pages was not provided, nor was there an explanation for the withholding. A report titled PACS Implementation at the Redacted Phase 3 On-The-Job Training Report states in its executive summary, Black & Veatch has completed the final stage of PACS Implementation at the Redacted. The site has been fully commissioned in operations of PACS functionality. They list some highlights from a few of the other reports, but I want to jump down a bit. You can find this for yourself at judicialwatch.org. A section of the order titled Special Contract Requirements cites the 2015 National Defense Authorization Act and states the contractor, quote, shall not engage in activities that incur expenditures in the Russian Federation, such as project management activities, procurement and shipping activities travel, or direct and indirect cost incurrences. The contractor may, however, procure Russian origin equipment from a Russian or non-Russian vendor located outside of Russia. The U.S. Embassy in Ukraine claims the U.S. Department of Defense's Biological Threat Reduction Program is purely for bio-threat reduction. And before I read this, I want you to remember back in late February, early March, when BioClandestine was doing his work and we were talking about it on this podcast and Victoria Newland was testifying before the United States Senate and the Russian Federation was saying, hey, we have all these records of what U.S. Defense Department programs were doing in Ukrainian biolabs. The U.S. Embassy in Ukraine erased all the information about these programs from their website. Just keep that in mind. But back to the Judicial Watch FOIA documents and what they found. The U.S. Department of Defense's Biological Threat Reduction Program collaborates with partner countries to counter the threat of outbreaks, deliberate, accidental, or natural, of the world's most dangerous infectious diseases. The program accomplishes its bio-threat reduction mission through development of a bio-risk management culture, international research partnerships, and partner capacity for enhanced biosecurity, biosafety, and biosurveillance measures. 
The biological threat reduction program's priorities in Ukraine are to consolidate and secure pathogens and toxins of security concern and to continue to ensure Ukraine can detect and report outbreaks caused by dangerous pathogens before they pose security or stability threats. Isn't that great? So they actually are studying dangerous pathogens in U.S. funded biolabs in Ukraine. But don't worry, it's just defensive. Now, they do call this research dual use research of concern. And by dual use, they mean this can be a defensive research program or the things that we are researching defensively could also be biological weapons. On March 8th, 2022, Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs Victoria Newland admitted to the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Ukraine has biological research facilities, which in fact, we are now quite concerned that Russian forces may be seeking to gain control of, so we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of Russian forces should they approach. On March 26th, 2022, the New York Post reported that Hunter Biden helped secure funds for a U.S. biolab contractor in Ukraine. According to a webpage expunged from the website of the State Department, PAX was first installed in Ukraine in test mode in November 2009 at the Interim Central Reference Laboratory of the Especially Dangerous Pathogens. Since then, Sanitary Epidemiological Department of the Medical Command of the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense received four mobile laboratories from DTRA with the goal of reinforcing the system of epidemiological surveillance in the armed forces of Ukraine. But as always, we are conspiracy theorists. There is absolutely nothing to see here. Russia has been claiming since this time that they were going after exactly this and that in these labs, they found this evidence. They brought that evidence to the U.N. Security Council and countries representing over half the world's population agreed with Russia that this should be investigated. And in the U.N. Security Council, our representatives to the U.N. called all of this a conspiracy theory. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was the president of Russia and foreign adversaries we're working together on dangerous pathogen research in bio labs just on the other side of my border, I might be a little concerned. And at this point, the evidence that that was happening is overwhelming. These are the government's own documents. It's impossible to deny that some research on dangerous pathogens that could be used as bioweapons was occurring at these Ukrainian biolabs. At that point, you have to understand that it's Russia who has been truthful about this, not the fake administration in the United States, and certainly not the global media, certainly not the tech companies who were censoring discussion on any of this. And once you've realized that, you give a little more credence to the other things the Russians are saying about this situation. And it's worth reminding everybody that one of the claims Russia has made about the information they found in these labs was that one of the things being studied was the migratory patterns of birds that flew over Russia and whether or not they might be able to infect those birds with the pathogen that they would then carry into Russia. And that pathogen was being manipulated to infect people of Slavic ethnicity. Now, is that worth staging a very unprovoked invasion? I'll leave that up to you. But we're pretty well past the point where we can call all of this a conspiracy theory and we can pretend that somehow Ukraine and the United States are just automatically in the right here. Again, if nothing bad was going on over there, why would they lie about it all? Why would they be pulling records off the embassy and the State Department websites? 
Why would they be taking people offline for discussing it? It's kind of the same principle as if the Democrats actually had a majority around the country, why do they steal so many elections? It's all a mystery. Some of the answers might be on the Biden laptop, though, so it's definitely worth reading that report. And just before I go, Elon Musk has posted something really interesting on Twitter today. He wrote, as Twitter pursues the goal of elevating citizen journalism, media elite will try everything to stop that from happening. He followed that up about a half an hour later. Mainstream media will still thrive, but increased competition from citizens will cause them to be more accurate as their oligopoly on information is disrupted. Now, I don't know what his next steps are and how much he's going to follow through on all that, but that news is about as good as you can get from my perspective as someone who has been heavily censored now for over two years. They just fired their head of trust and safety, Yoel Roth. So the censorship regime at Twitter has been pretty well eradicated. I really look forward to seeing where that goes. Now, I hope you all have a great weekend. Keep your eyes on election fraud as it's happening in Arizona, in Nevada, in Georgia and elsewhere. And I will be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. 
On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!